In this week's episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, we interviewed former Young Republican leader and campaigner for Ron DeSantis, Jason Emmett, live from Tennessee during the New Hampshire primary results. And in past glory, we profile President Trump's favourite predecessor, Andrew Jackson. Hi and welcome back to What's the Story, Old Glory, in our second episode in the election year 2024. Uh, I'm your host, Elizabeth Soule, and joining me on our journey through American politics is my co-host, Todd Muller. Thank you, Elizabeth, and uh, welcome home. You have been uh, on the state side, as they say, for uh, uh, a good few weeks, and I bet it's good to be home. But uh, do you have one um, sort of abiding uh, sense of the race as you hopped on the plane to head home? What would that be? Yeah, it's well, the sense of the race is that it's inevitably going to come down to the two candidates, Trump and Biden, as we've talked about before, but that it's really uncertain which way it's going to go. I met Republicans that don't like Trump, um, but not sure how they will vote. If it does come down to Biden and, and Trump, will, will they vote for Biden just because they want anyone but Trump or will it force people away from voting at all? And broad concern about um, the presidency of um, Biden and whether he'll be able to make it through another term. Mm. I can remember on the New Hampshire uh, primary coverage of CNN, uh, there was a, a focus group of uh, supposedly undecided Republicans mm -hmm. and they asked them their feedback on the result of New Hampshire and uh, and what they thought would occur um, come the general election and you know there was a quite a few in that um, audience that uh, were in favor of Haley uh, there were quite a few that were not very convinced that Trump was the right person to be the president but mm -hmm. all of them if given the uh, choice of between Trump or Biden, uh, just simply would have to vote for Trump. Uh, mm. And it would then be for them, um, you know, almost the, the lesser of two evils, if you like. They just simply could not stand, stomach uh, Biden for another four years. And it's been one of our themes, just the level of uh, intensity of American politics and, you know, a, a real dislike around the other side uh, and mm. you see it, and it was fascinating is when you're talking to these individuals as this facilitator was, you know, they were they were from all sorts of different demographics and life, but they were, you know, they were breaking towards supporting the Republicans, uh, but just none of them could stomach um, uh, where Biden has taken the country. Mm, interesting. There's a lot of pain over there, just as there is everywhere at the moment with cost of living, uncertainty, fear. And um, that doesn't bode well for an incumbent, regardless of who they are. And um, what do the polls say around how um, the race is uh, unfolding? It's, it feels to us that it's still pretty tight. Um, is that what the numbers are suggesting? So in terms of the um, national polls, 
Uh, in terms of who is most popular for the Republicans, Trump has extended his lead even further. He's now sitting at 73% versus 17% for Haley. Um, but national polls don't really matter because of the way the voting system works with the state delegates. So it's the state delegate numbers that count rather than the um, overall national polling figures. In terms of approval ratings, Biden's approval continues to um, take a nosedive. He is at 54% um, disapproval rating across the country and only 39% of the populace that, were, um, that have been polled approve of his presidency. So it's going to come down to, like we talked about before, some key swing states. And the six uh, that are in focus in terms of who they're going to vote for are North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. It's amazing how those uh, the last few elections have all turned on those few states. You know, there's 50 states that vote in America, mm -hmm. but essentially what we're saying is sort of 43 of them, you already know which president, which candidate's going to win them. Uh, That's right. Or Democrat. But, so there's these six or seven states, and they will be the difference. And that was it was close last time, wasn't it? It was. It comes down to literally thousands of votes. In a country of millions, it comes down to a race of very small numbers because it's those key states and because it's done on the electoral college system, that's what matters rather than percentage of the overall national vote. Yeah, I saw some uh, statistics from the last election uh, where, you know, if you look at the electoral college res uh, result, you need 270 to win and Biden got uh, over 300. But across those uh, five or six key marginal states, his margin of victory, quarter of a million votes. But there are 160 million people voted, and it came down to a quarter of a million, uh, which yeah. is it's hair's breadth type stuff. So, um, and, then you, and then when you break it down state by state, it's even less. Like the states of, I think it was Arizona and Georgia, which were key states for Biden to win. It was it was even smaller than that, the number of uh, by which he won. And yet it makes all the difference in the electoral college system. It's why presidential candidates often lament the electoral college system before they're elected, as Trump did when he thought he was perhaps going to lose and then proclaim it as the greatest thing since sliced bread after they've won. Yes, exactly. As you Trump know, did. As, as Trump did. Well, we... Uh, have a, a really fascinating uh, conversation with a guest um, today. Um, we had a chat to Jason Emmett uh, as the New Hampshire uh, primary results were being discussed on CNN. Uh, and he gave us a really interesting perspective because he'd been involved in the Republican Party for years. Uh, he'd, he's still relatively young and was the uh, young Republicans uh, head for all of America. So amazing to get him on our podcast. Uh, and he was a bit of a DeSantis fan, isn't he? Yeah, turns out he's he's done a bit of work for the DeSantis campaign and knows the man well. So um, it was a great conversation to have with him, like you say, as the results were coming through in New Hampshire. So we were talking to him live on the night, which was really exciting. And to hear his perspective, because you don't hear a lot about DeSantis on the news over here. So, uh, Settle back with a cup of tea and listen to our conversation with Jason Emmett. A very exciting evening for us. Uh, I'm in Tauranga, uh, Todd Muller, and of course, Elizabeth Sol, my uh, uh, companion in all things American politics. Where are you uh, talking to us from, Elizabeth? Tonight, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. 
So it's um, evening here and polls have just closed in the uh, New Hampshire primary. So I've got uh, the news on behind me so that we are discussing the um, news as it happens. Yeah, number two primary. Uh, we discussed that in our last uh, podcast that um, New Hampshire was the next one up. Uh, and uh, it's close. But before we get to talking about that and what that could all mean, we have a very special guest uh, joining us uh, from Tennessee. Uh, Jason, Jason Emmett, uh, welcome to uh, our crazy little podcast. Uh, in love with your uh, country and your crazy political system. Uh, welcome to What's the Story, Old Glory. And perhaps if you could just give us uh, a bit of an introduction of your involvement in the American political system and what roles you've had in the past and what you what your interests are now. Absolutely, Todd. Thank you and Elizabeth for having me on. This is really fun to do this. I, I really enjoyed getting uh, to speak to a lot of different international media because there is a uh, uh, interest and in borderline obsession with American politics because it's more of a, a soap opera than probably actual governance, but that, that is what it is and it's probably why uh, it's so addicting for people like me who have been involved. I, I mean, I, I've I've spent my first job in, in high school was working for the local county mayor when I was 16. I had elbow surgery playing baseball and my parents said, you can't mope around the house. You need to find something to do. And so I walked down to the courthouse and I got a job working for our, our county mayor, county executive. Uh, so I've been doing this for, for over two decades now, which is crazy to say out loud. Uh, I've, I've worked on Senate elections. I've run gubernatorial elections. I've advised members of Congress. I've, you know, I've worked with foreign governments. Uh, it's led me to be the national chairman of the Young Republican National Federation uh, during the early parts of, of Trump's term uh, from 2017 to 2019. And prior to that, I was the chairman of the International Young Democrat Union, uh, which is now called the International uh, Young Democracy Union, uh, where I was the leader of the center-right and conservative youth groups coalitions from around the world. And so that really exposed me globally, but but still I'm involved. I was involved in, in Ted Cruz's campaign in 2016 as their national chairman for young professionals. I was most recently involved in uh, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis's election here. I was a, a, a delegate in Tennessee uh, for him. And so I've kind of had a front seat uh, to a lot of the election going on right now. And I know a, a lot of people that work on, on both uh, Trump's campaign um, and, and Ambassador Haley's campaign. Uh, you were part of the Ron DeSantis uh, presidential campaign? I, I was. I've known Governor DeSantis since he was uh, in Congress. He, he's, uh, I think he's a wonderful guy. He's been a great governor. He's an awesome father. He's a great dad all the things that I look for and like who I want to be my next president and someone that I, I look up to. He's not much older than I am. Uh, and he was one of the first people that I, I went to seek out when I was elected young, uh, uh, young Republican national chairman to build a coalition uh, within Congress to elect more under 40 members of Congress. And he was really instrumental in helping us nationally. And, and I've supported him through his gubernatorial election um, up through two days ago when he dropped out, which I'm totally bummed about, but it is what it is. So people are already talking about his campaign in four years' time. So looking ahead to, it might not be his turn this time, but maybe in the next election. Yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate, and and I have a, I have an op-ed that that may be coming out soon about his his campaign and kind of what I saw from it. Um, 
I, I think it existed very online with people who are inexperienced. He, and I think he gave a lot of trust to people in Florida who didn't have national experience. And that's just one man's opinion. Um, I think he tried to fill the Trump lane maybe in, in tenor, but like his policies are wildly different than President Trump's. They govern totally differently. You know, President Trump is a former lifelong New York Democrat and Governor DeSantis is a Southern conservative. I mean, they, they have two philosophical differences of government. Yeah. And um, I saw an article, um, uh, it might have been in um, the Washington Post, I think, where it was sort of assessing Ron DeSantis's campaign and obviously talked about the challenges of the launch, the Twitter failure when he tried to launch it on Twitter. Uh, and they made the point there that his strength of um, you know, character and values around, you know, family, you know, the, his wife and his three three kids, I think, two or three kids. Yeah. Uh, and all those things that you thought that naturally he would put up sort of front and centre as part of uh, his campaign and his launch, uh, for some reason, um, it just didn't get, just didn't happen. And um, uh, maybe that's sort of what you're sharing as well, that perhaps the people around him didn't quite give him the best advice. I think his wife is his best asset. Casey's a rock star. I mean, she was a former presenter on the news. So, I mean, she was, she's great in interviews. She's great alongside. They did a really unique uh, kind of kickoff in, in some early states that they just didn't replicate uh, where she would interview him. And it would be this really interesting dynamic of them feeding off each other. I mean, they, they are great. I mean, they're great together. They have awesome chemistry. They could really, you could really tell that whenever she was interviewing him on stage at these events, but it's tough to replicate that, you know, a hundred times um, at every event. And, I mean, I, I watched, yeah, I watched him give a 45 minute speech in Tennessee at the largest gathering of, of Tennesseans um, uh, for the, the, our annual Republican gala. Uh, he, he was the headliner. He raised more money than any headliner in the history of the party. Um, and he didn't mention his wife once who was there with him. So it was, um, I don't think he did it on purpose, obviously. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. Um, so I just, I think they made a decision to, to make it about him and, and to try to uh, make him seem like this antagonistic, um, not authoritarian, but like this, you know, this kind of like outsider. And he is, but like, he's also a super accomplished guy. He's a, he's a former Navy officer and JAG officer. Uh, he's in Harvard. He's a Yale. He's a Yale grad and Harvard grad for law school. Like, I don't know if that means as much anymore after the recent weeks. But like, you know, he's an accomplished individual. He was elected when he was 34 to Congress. Like, I mean, he has a future. Um, it's tough, right? Like, you know, four years in American politics is a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. He's not going to run for Senate, right? Um, I don't personally believe, and we'll get into this, I don't personally believe there'll be a Trump administration that he goes into. I, I think that, you know, Ronald Reagan was out of office for almost eight years or, or six years whenever he became the presidential nominee, and he lost the 1976 nomination to Gerald Ford, uh, who was an incumbent, an unelected incumbent, but incumbent nonetheless in, in office. So there is there is a path there. Um, but typically, you know, if, if you lose, that's that's it. You get one shot to run for president in the U.S. It seems now, and, and I, you know Donald Trump is going to be a, a maybe a unique um, person to break that mold. We'll see.
would he be a candidate to be vice president, uh, a nominee, vice president, uh, partner to Trump? Or do you think because he's governor, he would, uh, it just won't play out that way? He is not. So there is a belief that you are barred from being a vice president on the ticket from someone from the same state. That is not constitutionally accurate. That's just been uh, a tradition. Um, mm. I, I think, you know, even in 2000, when Dick Cheney lived in Texas, he moved his re he moved his residency back to Wyoming to be George Bush's vice president. Um, I don't see him being vice president. Um, you especially don't want to be a vice president on a ticket that loses. I think that even probably hurts your brand more. Um, I think he's done a great job as governor of Florida. He'll continue to do a great job as governor of Florida. Uh, it's, it's one of the leading states in the nation from, from an economic standpoint. They're the fastest growing state residentially in the nation. The, they, they are far and away outpacing any of the other larger states, whether it be California or New York, and they're kind of a place of refuge for people fleeing, you know, these these far left these far, far left states. So, with DeSantis pulling out of the race, essentially that just left Haley, and tonight, I guess, will be the turning point for her campaign. Um, if she doesn't succeed in New Hampshire, um, will that be it for her? She's sunk a lot of money into this state, hasn't she? I, she has, I, I think, but like we have to define success, I think, first, right? It's that can she survive and move forward without winning? Absolutely. I think that's a success. I, I think there's some uh, polls that are wildly miscalculating that Trump is going to win by up to 20 points. Mm. I think it'll be somewhere between four to eight points, probably whenever the total. I think that's a victory for Nikki Haley. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's some other questions of, of how their campaign uh, has, has chosen to attack Trump a little bit too late. I think if you I think if you gave Haley another week, maybe she wins in, in New Hampshire. So but she's she's definitely has momentum. I think she's turned it around in New Hampshire. You know, her third place finish in Iowa was really a victory for her. And that's what did Governor DeSantis say. Um, mm -hmm. That's I said that last week. I said or whenever the, the election is, I said if, if Governor DeSantis finishes second, and he's within a few points of, of Nikki Haley, that's it. So um, it was pretty obvious where, where that was headed and he needed to do, he needed to beat her by 10 points in Iowa to survive. Um, I think he would have been fine if he would have made it um, into Super Tuesday, which is our March 5th election with multiple states. Uh, he would have picked up some more delegates, but they, they were bleeding cash and, and they just they couldn't perform anymore. So um, Nikki Haley is going, going to probably do better, I think, than most people expect here. Um, I think that in South Carolina she'll lose, which is a, that's a, that's her state. Um, mm -hmm. But she basically has the entire state against her, including the person that she she installed in the Senate seat, Tim Scott, uh, the Congresswoman who she endorsed in a primary against a Trump-backed opponent who won their election, and the current governor, who was her lieutenant governor, who became the governor upon her uh, elevation to ambassador at the UN. Um, so there is no loyalty. Um, in politics, it seems uh, the loyalty can only go one way, and it, it doesn't go. You know, three people in in South Carolina owe their political careers to Nikki Haley, and none of them uh, seem to want to reciprocate the favor to her. Um, I, I think that she has a great apparatus that is supporting her. The uh, um, 
she has Americans for Prosperity behind her. Uh, my wife and I, uh, our election day is on March 5th. We've already received two mailers and imagined we're going to see door knockers from their campaign wing um, soon leading up to that election. Uh, they are a formidable force, and they're one of the reasons why she's finding success in, in New Hampshire today. So I just see, um, as we speak, they have uh, predictably called Trump the winner. But as you've uh, highlighted, Jason, the margin of um, the victory margin is sort of currently at sort of 7%. Uh, which For 4,000 or so votes. Yeah, which is significantly lower than the sort of big double digits. Uh, and so we can totally see that she'll, you know, claim that that second is a very good showing and, you know, and so she goes on to South Carolina. Um, is it possible for her uh, to win the nomination? You know, looking at it from a Kiwi perspective from afar, um, with all these states still to, um, you know, obviously have their primaries and Trump seems to be ahead in most of them. Um, is there a pathway forward or uh, after, after South Carolina, um, when she loses her own state, as you predict, is that sort of when it runs out? I think she goes through the March 5th primary. I think there's just too much, too many states at stake. And like, look, she's going to get delegates too along the way. Um, yep. well, she's going to, she left Iowa delegates. She'll leave New Hampshire delegates. You know, she needs delegates in South Carolina and she's going to need delegates in the, in the, uh, on, on super Tuesday. That's when the conversation gets, gets more interesting with her. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Donald Trump's uh, criminal cases are going to catch up with him as well. Um, and, and Republican voters are going to start making a choice that are we going to take a weakened candidate who loses by all metrics against President Biden, who has the lowest approval rating of any incumbent president heading into an election? Or are we going to choose someone who beats him uh, by 10% in battleground straits across the, across the country? And that's just going to have to be a, a, a gut check for Republicans around the nation. And if, if they can't come to terms with um, with someone like Nikki Haley or even Governor DeSantis a, a week ago, he was still pulling ahead of Joe Biden. But if they can't come to terms with, with winning the election in November, which is what this is ultimately about, then we're going to lose probably not only the, the executive office, we're also going to lose the majority in the House, and we're going to stay in the minority, minority in the Senate, along with there's going to be a down ballot uh, failure uh, of state majorities as well. I mean, Governor, uh, when Donald Trump was president, we not we lost the House, we lost the Senate, yes, but we also lost thousands of state legislative seats and city council seats around the country. And so, if you look at Iowa, uh, uh, Donald Trump got fifty six percent of the caucus vote, correct? Uh, and that was only eleven per he only he only received eleven thousand more votes than in twenty sixteen when he got twenty three percent of the vote and finished second. So hmm. the enthusiasm among Republicans core Republicans just isn't there. There's been greater enthusiasm in New Hampshire because undeclared voters can come out and vote for or against somebody. And, and it seems like a third voted for Haley because they believe in her and a third came out because they just don't like Donald Trump. And so um, I think there's been some misinformation by some folks and not the media, but uh, from a particular campaign that there are Democrats that can vote in this election and Democrats, registered Democrats cannot vote in the New Hampshire election. Uh, you you have to be a registered Republican or you have to be undeclared. So, and then if you undeclare, you then have to choose voting in the Republican or Democrat primary. And that, that effectively is your party registration for that day. That's interesting because I, I was told that by a couple of Republicans just this week, 
that there would be Democrats voting in New Hampshire deliberately against Trump as a strategic move. That's just not true. I mean, I don't know how to say that any other way. So, so, so Democrats would have had to undeclare their party registration by October in order to be considered an undeclared voter in New Hampshire uh, for this election. Um, and look, Democrats want to, I mean, whatever the Trump administration or campaign wants to say, Democrats want to face Donald Trump. They don't want to face Nikki Haley, who appeals to to millions of more people across across the country. She she gets out suburban voters. She appeals to the you know what we used to call in the Bush administration the national security mom, um, mm-hmm. and that's what that's how Republicans used to win. We had the national security mom uh, that cared about security, you know, our global posture, um, and keeping a free and independent uh, status around the world. And look, that's that's important to people. Um, and Donald Trump's not the guy that appeals to them. At the end of the day, majority of people, even our own party, support Ukraine. They support intervention around the world. And the independents far and away believe that that U.S. is a force for good globally. And that's not the message from the Trump campaign. Jason, I have uh, followed U.S. politics since I was a little boy. Uh, and because of the um, roles I've had in the past, both in politics um, and in professional career have been over to America many times and been to was at the 2016 convention uh, and met a number of what I would describe as sort of traditional Republicans you know um, you've, you've talked particularly not exclusively guys of course you've highlighted the national security mums but in the context that I would meet uh, these Republican leaders they were very strong in security, very strong in America's place in the world, pro-free trade, very keen to ensure that you know America's um, values and interests were projected in partnership with Europe and NATO and the rest and the rest of the world. And now, when I listen to some of the language that back from your country, particularly the Republicans in your country, it seems a far more uh, disparate um, group. You know, you you. Is that a fair assessment? Um, where are the sort of uh, George W. Bush uh, types um, that um, uh, and George Herbert Walker Bush types that um, used to be the people that you'd meet when you'd get over there? But the activists seem to be quite different in their worldview. Um, what's what's changed in the Republican Party over the last uh, eight to twelve years? If you think my assessment of change is fair, if you don't. I think you're absolutely spot on, but I, I promise you, there's still some of us that exist that are that are old old Bushies. I, I I am a I am a, a Bush. You know, I grew up. I was in high school when 9/11 happened. I'm an Air Force reservist. Like I, I take national security seriously. I'm a Republican because I'm I'm a free trader. I I believe in our where we stand globally. I want strong national security, um, and that's just I think you have to separate the activist base now. And the policies of Trump, which are anti-tariff, anti-free trade, I mean, which are pro-tariff, anti-free trade, and there's no daylight between how he campaigned and how President Biden now governs. They have not; he has not unwound any bit of his policy on trade. It is the exact same trade policy, and I think the biggest mistake that that we made um, as as a party and during the Trump administration was not following through on the TPP. And I'm sure that that New Zealand would have a a, a position on that as well. Correct. <laughs> I think if if you truly believe that China is the, the greatest threat to our our geopolitical status in the world, you want to have all the friends and all the trading partners in the world aligned with you. 
and not doing that was not just an economic mistake, um, which led to the largest foreclosures of, of, of family and small businesses, uh, small farmers around the country during Trump's four years. It also led to, to, to the, the Indo-PACOM now, as we call it, um, being more strategically aligned with China, or at least more strategically dependent, if not aligned. Um, whenever we could have, you know, Vietnam's a great ally to have. We could have had closer ties uh, in Indonesia. Like there, there's so many positive we could have gained from that, just from a national security standpoint, let alone the benefit that it would have been for our, our like milk and dairy markets, um, for our farmers in middle America who were forced to close. Um, so what's Trump's plan if he gets into office in that respect? Is it is it to, to, to replicate what he did in his first term in terms of some of those policies? Or do you think that he will try and push the envelope out a bit further because he'll have a mandate and nothing to lose, essentially? I, I, I think if he wins, uh, if he wins the election, he's going to have a divided government. Um, and there's not going to be really any policies he can do. He could try I, uh, to implement some tariffs from that through national security measures, which can be unwound in the next presidency. Um, the the steel tariffs aren't benefiting anybody. Uh, they've made it more expensive to build here. They've made it more expensive. Um, uh, you know, we have this now. Now they're trying to stop Japan, um, a Nippon Steel, from acquiring U.S. Steel, which would just close down U.S. Steel in the east coast of the U.S. So it would be it'd be a horrible mistake for all the people that depend on on that as a paycheck. I think he'll double down on trade policies. I, I don't, th he fundamentally believes that his, his tariffs on China were being, were, were being borne by China and not borne by taxpayers. There is a, there is a disconnect because he campaigns on this. He campaigns on, on saying that China paid billions of dollars to the U S treasury. Mm, same as Mexico will pay for the wall. Same as Mexico will pay for the wall. It's, but the, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like you guys know the tariffs are just taxes and all that is passed on to U.S. consumers. So U.S., we paid billions of dollars in unnecessary tariffs uh, because he wanted to punish, and he, but he fundamentally believes that China was punished because of it. Why do you think um, Trump can't win? Because um, I just look at, and we both, Elizabeth and I, look at um, your various polls uh, mm -hmm. And it's probably worth just spending a moment, Jason, if you don't mind just explaining uh, to our listeners that it actually is probably going to come down to six or seven states and which ones you think they might be. Uh, and the polling that we see, key states, swing states, he's he's ahead. So what? why do you hold a view that if it ends up being Trump, uh, that Biden, for all his um, you know, challenges in terms of public sentiments, lack of support, economy under pressure is still going to win. Yeah, there's nothing like um, the greatest country on planet Earth putting up two octogenarians for a, an election again. So we do find that baffling. <laughs> we talk about it often. So, um, I, so I, I think I think there's there's two things I, I, to, to the polling. Let me talk to the polling specifically. Uh, what we're seeing is national polls. And national polls mean nothing. Like they mean nothing. And so people talk about how the national polls got it wrong in 2016 or the national polls got it wrong in 2012. They didn't. If you look individually state by state, the, the state polls, whenever you're polling all 50 states, is they're pretty accurate. And if 
they had Hillary Clinton winning by 1%, the margin of error is 3%, and Trump wins by 30,000 votes in Wisconsin, that poll's accurate. And so um, I, I think that from, from a data standpoint, the polling has to be done on an individual state basis. And it's not being done globally enough to where it means anything. And national polls are trends. And I think Trump's at his high watermark right now. Uh, and Joe Biden's not. He's, I mean, he's, he's still getting, you know, what, 46%, 43% of the vote for a national election that's not happening yet, all while having a 33% approval rating. Um, Democrats, yeah, that, I mean, that in itself is, is, is crazy to think about. But, but Democrats will always come home. They will always come home and vote for their candidate. And they're especially going to vote for the candidate. And if they have to hold their nose and vote for one of the worst presidents in our country's history, they'll do it. And I think that you're going to have a lot of Republicans that stay home as well, because they just can't imagine going in and pulling the lever for Donald Trump. I mean, you even you see it in these polls in New Hampshire that a third of the Republicans in the exit poll won't vote for vote for Trump if he's the nominee. They said that in Iowa too. That that's the trend that, that should be the talking point around the nation is that if Trump is the nominee, a third of the Republicans aren't going to show up, which is significant because Republicans have a 12 million voter disadvantage nationally when it comes to Democrats. Now, and the majority of, of voters now are independents. It used to be a third, a third, a third. I think that independents are almost pushed up to 40% now. And he he's underwater by 23 plus votes, 23 plus percent among independents. So the, the numbers look bad whenever you dig into the crosstabs of, of the polling and get into the information of, of, yes, you can look at the national poll, but when you go into the national poll and you look into the data and start extrapolating some finer points, you see where there's going to be issues in in, in Pennsylvania. That's going to be one of the states that's the biggest issue. You're going to see issues in Wisconsin. He They were bragging about how he's tied in Georgia. Like the Trump campaign was bragging about he was tied in Georgia. If you're if you're bragging about being tied in Georgia in January of an election year, you're going to lose. You're, you're going to lose. And so there are other data points that, that I don't think people here or elsewhere under, understand or are paying attention to that are that are bad for a President Trump being the nominee. So if Trump were to get the nomination and then lose, I know that you can't predict the future, but but what's next for the Republican Party? Are they going to have a, like it, we talked about it earlier today, Todd and I, um, you know, people assumed that Trump was done after the last election, but he clearly wasn't. Will he be done if he loses again? Will the Republican Party say enough's enough? What's that? Is it Jerry Maguire where they say, I can't quit? What did there's got the, uh, uh, I guess maybe it was, you know, this party cannot quit Donald Trump. Like, I, I, <laughs> I've i never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, they're trying, all these people now in, in the activist side have complained about the Bush family as a dynasty, and they're they're ready to, you know, to coronate the Trump family. And I, and I think trading the Bush family or the Cheneys or the Tafts or, or any of these other families, the Romneys, my goodness, mm. the Trumps is such a losing trade that hurts our, our country and our party significantly. We're never going to win. You know, there's already been people contemplating having Don Jr. be the nominee or being yeah. in 2028. Um, look, 
I went around as, as, as chairman of the, of the Young Republicans and spoke about how we have a demographic shortfall. And by 2026, the Republican coalition of the, you know, at the time, and this is in 2018, I'm, I'm talking about this, the, the over 60 voters become less than a quarter of the voting population. So you got to think we're almost there, right? And so that coalition that we have of the baby boomer generation, it's going to make up less than a quarter of, of the voting block. And I think we're going to have to go through some really significant, significantly bad times before we can come out of this and realize that our party, you know, we are, when Nikki Haley articulates, uh, you know, having a strong foreign policy, free trade, that's when we're, that's when we're at our best. It really is. And American people, they, it resonates with them. Like we don't want, we are not living in the worst. We're not living in a bad country. We're living in the greatest time on planet earth. And so it is very hard to have this doom and gloom message and Republicans, in, in my opinion, just we don't wear doom and gloom very well. We are a hopeful, we're a hopeful party that thinks our better days are, are ahead of us and, and than they are behind us. And and to me, having this constant doom and gloom that the country's over, that there's we live in this nightmare and only one person can turn it around, is just mind blowing to me. Like we have such a great we have such great governors across the country. You got Brian Kemp in Georgia, Governor DeSantis. You have um you have Governor Landry just elected in, in Louisiana. You have my governor in Tennessee, Bill Lee, has been an exceptional governor. So um, we're leading on education. We're leading, we're, we're leading on occupational licensing reform. We're leading on, on things that matter to everyday Americans at the state level. And that's just not getting translated nationally because Donald Trump has such a grip on, on, the, uh, on the national psyche of Republicans. I mean, the Republican Party is leading on criminal justice reform. On tax, I mean, like it's incredible the victories that we have as governors across the state, across the country, in in states, and so, and they're just not getting translated up. But that's the future, right? If you're delivering uh, effective public policy uh, at a state level, that's where the future opportunity is. And and Jason, we uh, are conscious of your time and uh, and probably have to uh, uh, end it here, but. In terms of future generation generational leadership, uh, you've already shown uh, a lot in your leadership of the young Republicans across the country. Are you uh, is standing at a state level um, uh, something that's in your um, uh, immediate um, or medium term focus, uh, or is uh, uh, the family and two kids uh, 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 a greater priority? How's it? What's your plans, my friend? I mean. Family is always the, the greatest priority, but I, you know, look, it's, it's, um, it would be, it would be, I'd love to get back in. I kind of feel like I'm out, out of the fight. Um, uh, and, and I'm very passionate about it. I mean, you, you know what it's like. So it's like, it's, it's, it's tough to be on the sidelines. I, I turned 40 this year. It's a, it's a, I'm in a great place, um, in a, in a business wise. Um, but you know, we'll see. I don't know if I have the, the right, tenor uh, at the moment so maybe it's we have to break this fever first but um i am very passionate about our future and, and i think that uh the world is better when america leads and, and i certainly hope that the generation that that i'm a part of agrees with that and that you know we'll be once again that that uh city on a shining hill that that president reagan spoke of. thank you so much for your
Jason. I'm just turning around and looking at the news and Trump has extended his lead in New Hampshire to 8,000 votes by the looks of it. So it's getting, it's being called for Trump. So it was great having you talk to us while we watch it live. Um, and we're really appreciative of your time. Yeah, look, Jason, it's uh, really, really appreciate your insights. And uh, maybe um, as this crazy train rolls on over the next uh, 10 months, uh, we'll be able to twist your arm to uh, uh, come on again um, and give us uh, your insights because uh, it means a lot for us. Um, you know, we, you're right, America is in a remarkable country uh, and has huge amount of supporters around the world. Uh, two of us and, uh, uh, count us very much in that camp. Um, and, you know, you do look at America at the moment with a sense of slight bewilderment around how is it that they've got to here? And that's essentially why we've pulled our pod podcast together to try and, you know, help ourselves understand it because uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy. But uh, your insights today have been really awesome. So thanks heaps. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Elizabeth. I appreciate you having me on. Well, that was uh, Jason Emmett, and so good to hear firsthand the um, passion for politics that he clearly has, uh, and his um, the rationale for why he was a DeSantis man, uh, and um, you know his frustration that uh, his party, party that he's had a lot of connections with, uh, as you know, as a national leader, even a young national leader in the Republican Party. The frustration he has that essentially Trump is the best that his party can serve up. Uh, great to have his perspective. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and it sort of flows into a question that we've had from a listener, Bill in Wellington, wanted to know what happens to the um, del state delegate votes that go to the that have already been decided for the likes of DeSantis and Ramaswamy. They both have delegate votes coming out of the. Um, uh, the primaries caucuses that we've already had and what happens to those votes now. And so the answer is it essentially depends on the state because each state has its own party rules. Um, and so sometimes when that happens, um, candidates are able to go to the um, to the national convention for their party in the middle of the year and three things can happen. They can either be a free agent and decide whomever they want to vote for. Secondly, they have to vote for the delegate for which they um, have, have been chosen to represent. So in this case, that would be Ramaswamy and DeSantis, even though they're not running, they still have to cast their votes for those, for those two. Um, or they, by convention with a small c, they cast their votes for the person that that um, candidate has endorsed. So often a candidate, when they step down from the race, they will endorse another candidate and saying, I now support. Um, candidate X. So Ramaswamy has said that he is um, endorsing Trump. So that will likely mean that his votes go to Trump at the convention. DeSantis um, hasn't made it clear yet who he is going to um, who he is going to endorse. He and Trump used to be great friends, but not so much anymore. Trump calls him Ron DeSanctimonious. So we shall see what happens with his decision on where he's going to put his uh, support. And we'll talk about uh, the nominating conventions um, in more detail in future episodes. But I did have the great uh, privilege of attending the 2016 Republican and Democrat uh, national conventions and was actually on the floor whilst the voting of those delegates 
uh, was occurring. And it's a, it's a remarkable process. And um, each state is um, essentially called to a microphone and the lead uh, from that state will stand up and essentially say, we're the state of wherever, we have X amount of delegates, and to your uh, very good answer there, Elizabeth, uh, we'll say, you know, Y number of uh, votes for Trump, Z number for uh, um, DeSantis, etc. And uh, I noticed just listening at that time, there was Ted Cruz was in the mix, uh, uh, he getting some, and I think uh, Jeb Bush got some, um, even though he'd pulled out very early uh, out of Texas. So you just, that, that's just, I mean, Trump, of course, got there and uh, it was all you know, preordained. Everyone knows what the result's going to be, but they go through that, go through the motions of uh, the physical delegates being on the floor and their leader standing up at a microphone that everyone in the convention can hear. And of course, all the TV cameras everywhere watching them commit their particular delegates to whoever uh, candidate uh, their state has supported. So um, very interesting. Politics and action. Yeah, what a spit. What a spectacle. That must be so fascinating to watch. It is. It is. Particularly back then where there were those who were uh, calling um, and, and giving their support for Trump that you could then uh, informally, as I did, um, as a, I guess, visitor, uh, as an MP, uh, then talk to them and they would privately say they didn't want to support Trump. But wow. that's where the state had voted. And so therefore, in the primary, their job as a as a delegate uh, to the conference was to do what their state had voted for. Period, and uh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, so as we normally do for each episode, we have our past glory focus on a former president, and this week it's your turn, Todd. So, who have you chosen to um, to inform our listeners on? Well, I chose uh, President Andrew Jackson, who was the seventh president of uh, the United States, a famous military war hero, as you know, as you know, probably not clearly the equal of Washington, but uh, revered at the time for uh, his military uh, success. He was um, very effective. Uh, there is quite a lot of bloodshed in the, as often as the way in wars. And, uh, you know, it wasn't done cleanly, but he did manage to uh, uh, secure victories in many battles, uh, particularly, and I think probably the most one he's most famous for uh, is uh, the Battle of New Orleans in 1812, uh, when uh, he, um, uh, as they say, gave the British a mighty whipping. And, uh, but what is fascinating, there's a few fascinating little things about, he served for two terms, uh, and but there, he's a Democrat, uh, and he's pre former President Trump's favourite former president, which is really interesting in the first uh, uh, glance, because Trump is a Republican, uh, and Jackson was essentially the first president uh, of, uh, that came from the Democratic Party. Uh, now, he set up uh, that um, uh, party. It was uh, set up after 1824, because in 1824, um, he also stood for president and won the popular vote, but didn't win enough uh, support in the Electoral College. And it was one of the few elections in America which essentially went back to the House of Representatives to be able to um, 
uh, decide who the president should be. In America, right now, in this 2024 election, the winner is someone who gets 270 electoral votes. So the equivalent scenario would be if there was two or three other candidates beyond Biden and Trump, and it split the votes, and some won some states, and some won the others, and no one could get to 270. It would then go to the House of Representatives to um, resolve. And that's what happened in 1824. And the um, House of Representatives decided to support um, John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president. Andrew Jackson immediately said that the election was stolen from him and Hmm. set up his own party, uh, which was called the Jacksonian Democratic Republican Party, first known as the Oppositions, and eventually were called the Democrats uh, for short. Is this why Trump likes him so much? Well, there's a number of... uh, Stolen elections, in inverted commas. It it sort of gets better, actually. Um, He is is an absolute... Trump is a a fierce defender of Andrew Jackson, actually. And, um, you know, I think he sees a bit of himself... Uh, his sort of self-styled uh, sense of who he is in sort of Andrew Jackson's story. Andrew Jackson uh, was born in 1767, came from absolutely nothing uh, and uh, managed to uh, you know climb his way up to be probably the biggest celebrity in America uh, by the mid-1820s. Uh, uh, he was um, he was known as a troublemaker, um, and uh, according to uh, one of the report reports of the day, Andrew Jackson was the most roaring, rollicking, game cocking, horse racing, card playing, mischievous fellow that ever lived in Salisbury in the United uh, uh, States. Um, exactly. Uh, he branded himself as a voice of uh, the common uh, man and um, where John Quincy Adams was the professional insider elite, son of a former president, um, Jackson said, I'm not like that. I'm tough as old Hickory, which was his nickname. He was seen as a tough military campaigner, tough as old Hickory, which is a hard wood in America. That was his nickname, uh, old uh, um, uh, Hickory. And he was very, very aggressive in how he campaigned. He called um, Adams a corrupt insider who was out of touch uh, with uh, the people uh, and um, was absolutely um, um, probably the first uh, presidential election where um, aggressive smearing of your opposition occurred. News broke in 1828 because he stood, obviously he stood in 1824, didn't make it, so he stood in 1828. And just as that campaign was unravelling, Um, News broke that Jackson's wife was, in fact, married to another man when she started shacking up with him decades earlier. Mm, Uh, Scandal. A scandal. Jackson was irate and decided to fight fire with fire. Um, He accused Adams, and this is in print at the time, right, uh, of living in sin 
gambling, breaking the Sabbath, pimping out an American virgin for the pleasure of a Russian czar, among other things. Uh, and, um, and he kept up this anti-intellectual strategy from the previous election. One of his slogans was, vote for Andrew Jackson who can fight, not John Quincy Adams who can write. And it was a very, very bitter election in 1828. He won. 600,000 votes to 500,000 votes. That's just all the one million people. That's all it was back then who voted. But a, a thumping majority of um, 178 to 83 in the electoral um, uh, in the electoral college. A um, couple of things just to conclude, and you can sort of see why Trump perhaps has an affinity for the seventh president of the United States. Upon his inauguration, Jackson introduced an open door policy at the White House. Any citizen could come inside and party with him. Things quickly got out of hand. First hand accounts, first eye accounts include stories of broken china, scary drunks, bloody noses, fainting women, and the use of windows as entrance and exits. Uh, <laughs> booze, was, booze was eventually moved to the lawn to convince people to leave the White House. Uh, so that was quite an uh, inauguration party. Uh, I bet. This is just classic, this last thing. President Andrew Jackson had a thing for taking it outside. He was involved in an estimated 103 duels, often because someone said something negative uh, about his wife. His love of revenge and settling scores carried over into his time as president. And wow. upon taking office, he fired his enemies. Uh, hired all his unqualified friends in the place, creating what came to be known as the spoil system, which still continues today, that the president uh, can appoint whoever he or she, hopefully eventually a she, uh, wants in terms of all of these positions across government. So um, I, thought, um, I thought you would quite like that. Of course, the response from the other side of politics was uh, just as fierce. Uh, and um, I will put up on our uh, website, uh, our um, social media and our, our What's the Story Old Glory uh, podcast page, a fantastic uh, uh, poster from the time, an election poster of the time, which uh, was is projecting um, the president as King Andrew I uh, <laughs> and really... Um, playing up the fact that he was, in the eyes of many, uh, a tyrant president uh, of the United States. So what do they say? History never repeats, uh, but it certainly does echo. That's the exact phrase I was just thinking of. What a way to put it. I can the, the, the parallels between him and Trump are just extraordinary. And the fact that Trump has even said that if he gets elected, he will be <clears throat> seeking vengeance on his enemies and uh <clears throat> yeah doing things to um to um get his own back on those he feels have wronged him over the years so that's interesting that and he's taking a leaf out of andrew jackson's book it's one of the things that i found as i study american politics is as disheartened as i am that america of the 2020s is as partisan as it is it has huge form in this regard uh you know, Whilst we might not have seen it in the in the sort of more modern uh, context, uh, if you go back into their history, particularly last century, uh, sorry, the century before, the nineteenth century, uh, 
it was vicious and um, at a level that uh, would sort of take our breath away. So, you know, uh, the, the road um, has been trodden before. Uh, but I find it fascinating that, you know, this is a, a president that was controversial, uh, very much seen as an outsider, the voice of the common man, uh, a Democrat. But despite all his obvious uh, strengths and weaknesses, Trump is an unabashed um, uh, supporter. And um, that just, I guess, talks volumes. Um, and I should just um, uh, leave this last comment um, uh, and listeners can make up their own mind. This is a direct quote about the behavior of President Jackson. He was, and I quote, a cantankerous, iron-willed, intimidating manager. President Andrew Jackson. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed listening um, to our podcast today. I certainly found it fascinating uh, talking to Jason. Uh, and until we uh, meet again, uh, this is uh, Todd Muller. Um, farewell. And Elizabeth Sol, Ma Tewa. What's the Story? Old Glory is written, produced, edited, and presented by Elizabeth Sol and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can find us on all the usual social media channels at Old Glory Pod and send us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com.